Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. listening to Planet Pod with me Amanda Carpenter and I'm really excited to have our guests in the studio today because we have two representatives from Extinction Rebellion who have brought with them the excitement of the street um, and exile badges but also a real insider's insight into what's happening in our capital at the moment and in capitals across the world because as listeners know Extinction Rebellion have been staging a mass protest in central London. We're actually recording this while the protest is going on and hopefully by the time it comes out the protest will still be going on. So we're feeling that this is a particularly topical issue to be discussing today. I'm delighted to introduce our guests today. We have two different voices within the XR movement and it's very exciting because we're going to be getting an insider's view as to what is actually going on out there on the streets at the moment. I'm pleased to invite Steve Shaw who runs an organisation called Power for People which is an NGO campaigning around climate justice and um, climate campaigning and he's going to tell us all about that in a minute and Marine van der Geer now I've had to practice that as you can tell <laughs> and Marine has been involved with XR from the very beginning almost exactly a year ago we were in an incredibly noisy pub yes. on the Strand talking to Roger and Gail and Marine, Marine helped us make that happen so yeah. <laughs> both of you welcome and thank you, thank um, you. let's talk about a little bit about what's happening at the moment. Let's talk about what's going on at the, on the streets and the difference between this uprising, this rebellion, and the one that we had a year ago, which was, while it was quite impactful, was a lot, lot smaller, I think. Is that fair to say? Mm-hmm. Well, um, I suppose it depends which one you're talking about, because obviously, um, well, just before we first met uh, back in that pub Autumn. on Fleet Street, yeah, uh, we had the um, declaration on the 31st of October 2018 first, where, you know, we thought about 20 people would show up and there were easily a thousand people then. So that already sort of, you know, was beyond our wildest dreams. Then we had the five bridges in November which again was much bigger than we'd ever expected. And then April was our first big international rebellion um, where we had thousands and thousands of people. And, you know, we lasted much. I mean, to be perfectly honest, most of us didn't think we'd last the day, but we managed to be there for about 11 days, um, which was amazing. And people were joining us as and when, um, you know, they, they decided to kind of get... Obviously, the weather was amazing, so that helped as well. Yeah, it but, did um, <laughs> Much warmer and sunnier than it is at Yes, the this time it's pretty tough. Um, the police are much better prepared this time. Uh, they obviously had a very tough time because um, the media uh, were extremely um, critical of how they dealt with us in April, which I think is a shame because I think they were extremely respectful most of the time. There were very few incidents. Uh, obviously, there were some incidents, but, you know, not not sort of on the scale of, of uh, you know, more aggressive protests at all. Um, and they were very respectful and very understanding. They were, you know, we were... Um, exercising our democratic right to protest um, on this very, very serious issue. Um, It's very different this time. Um, Yeah, my my sense was last time, I mean, the April particularly, was much more of a kind of carnival atmosphere and it was, people were 
you know, the police themselves were joining in at some point, weren't they? And, and you know, much more, I don't, yes, as you say, respectful, but also gentler, really, in the yeah. way that they, they were treating um, protesters who were being arrested. Yeah. The, there's a definite shift, isn't there, in the feel this time yeah. around? Yeah. It's very interesting because when you're speaking to the police now, um, I don't I don't know, obviously, the insider story on this, but... Uh, in April, there were a lot more police officers who were actually very worried about the climate emergency. Um, whereas now, it seems to be most of the officers you speak to um, don't really believe in it and don't really care about it. I don't know whether that's true, whether they've been told to say that, or I don't know whether they've vetted like climate change denier officers. I'm not sure what's happened, but it's very different. That's a really interesting idea that they might have selected people who were less empathetic. I don't know if that's true, and, but or, it feels a bit like that. Yeah, I suspect it's probably a more question of their following orders and they're doing what they have to do. Mm. Steve, were you involved last time? Were you involved in April? Um, you- I, n- not heavily. I, I went along. Um, I went along to the Marble Arch site um, and it was my first encounter face-to-face um, with the movement. Um, I'd obviously heard how amazing it was, but uh, I, was, uh, yeah, I was really taken aback by how well organised it was, um, how, how friendly and how warm the atmosphere was. Um, things like it was so clean and tidy. There was a lot of people, say thousands of people at Marble Arch, um, not not even a whiff of any kind of cannabis, let alone any other drugs at all. Um, no alcohol in sight either. You know, these kind of things are just, I was just so impressed. Um, and then obviously just the amount of people as well. Um, and I, at that point, uh, was kind of fortunate. Well, actually a friend kind of grabbed me and said, look, you've got to talk to Sarah Lunnan, who's one of the, she's in one of the, she's in the political uh, organizing circle. Um, and so I did, and then, um, that's what led to this idea of uh, having actually a, a bill and trying to get legislation through Parliament. We'll talk about the bill in a second, but just tell me a little bit about the organisation you run, Power for the People, because you're an NGO um, and you've been doing this for two or three years, did you say? Yes, so I founded Power for People two years ago. Um, my background is in parliamentary campaigns. I've uh, worked at a number of different larger NGOs like Friends of the Earth. Um, I founded Power for People because... Um, at the moment, no large environmental charities or NGOs are running what I call bill campaigns, which is where you decide what law you want, and then you write the bill yourself, and then you run a big grassroots campaign across the country to try and get it into law. Um, there's various reasons for that. We could go into in depth, but perhaps not appropriate for now. But um, So I thought, well, we need, we need an organisation that's doing this. Friends of the Earth used to do it, and they did, they did some amazing work uh, the climate change act is a result of one of their campaigns um anyway but i thought they're not doing it now no one is so i thought it's time to found an organization that does it and that's what powerful people does we so at the moment have a specifically an organization to get parliamentary legislation enacted yes. bills into parliament and then turned into legislation yes exactly and it, in order to um increase renewables and help solve the climate crisis okay Okay, so it's a it's a it's a climate organisation with much. a very strong political Ex- sort yes. of driver behind it. Okay, yes. So this sounds like a match made in heaven for XR, doesn't it? Really, <laughs> it's 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 so good. And you know, um, we were in Port Carlos House the other day, and and one of the MPs very kindly kind of showed us round. And you know, the system is so 
complicated. There's no way that normal person on the street can navigate this and, and can understand how to how to go through this process and how to make their voice heard and how to you know so so having an organization like this and you know having people like Sean helping is just absolutely essential because you know we wouldn't even know where to start I mean obviously Sarah Lunnan and, and everyone in the political circle know a lot about it but it's so the details and how it works and you know the, the process is just I mean yeah, it's this really is. complicated and I think probably quite isolating for quite a lot of people, isn't it? So, And then there's a discussion for us to have here about you know, our parliamentary system and whether it's working on behalf of the people because that is something, I think, which lies at some of the heart of what XR is trying Absolutely. to do is actually change the way that we run the democracy that we live in. But before we do that, can I just, can I just row back one level a little bit and ask about the, the kind of wider political drivers because... I think a lot of people when XR first came onto the scene thought, oh, this is, you know, climate hippies and, you know, there's yeah. lots of people who, you know, it's, it's, it's lots of sort of, you know, kind of hemp-wearing, hemp you know, vegans who really care about animals. But actually, it's quite a structured political movement, isn't it? And I do know people who said, oh, I can't get involved with XR because it's too bureaucratic. You know, the whole process is about having a structure, supporting people, having training, having interventions so people are not just randomly arrested with no help and so so I think that that people might listeners might not be aware of how kind of structured and well organized you are but how you also have a very strong political agenda isn't just you know I can't say isn't just climate but but you're driven by trying to change the political world we live in as well as trying to prevent you know climate um, crisis to a certain extent yes but, you know, we're not, I mean, and within XR, the, the opinions on this varies immensely. Um, but I wouldn't say we're sort of radical that we want to bring down government and take over in total anarchy. That's not what we're here for. We're just identifying that there is a problem, that the current system is overly complicated. It's unrepresentative. Um, it's not fair. It's not accessible. And that is something that needs to be addressed. And, and as you say, it's the reason why we're in this mess in the first place. Um, and then the the actual organization of XR. So the founders, um, so especially people like Roger Hallam, who are quite heavily academic um, orientated, um, wanted to introduce a sort of um, holocratic um, system, which, which we've kind of dipped in and we've taken bits and bobs from that that uh, sort of methodology that suited XR um, and then we've kind of developed our own strategies as well sort of again you know picking and mixing from all sorts of different uh, ways so we've got a very strong self-organizing system um, I used to be part of that group actually until I just got overwhelmed and I had to stop <laughs> doing everything um, so and and they have developed this really useful structure that doesn't have it was funny actually I was on the tube yesterday and someone said to you know people were talking to each other and they're like who's the boss of of Extinction Rebellion and the girl said Greta Thunberg <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah so we don't really have a boss as such no. we have some faces you know like Gail and Roger mm. and Claire and you know mm. there's mm. there's the people who you know the original founders 
Um, but it's very much works in circles. So, you know, your your work your working group and then you report to your wider circle, which reports to a wider circle to a wider circle. So there's a lot of um process and structure in there, but it's trying to be as um non hierarchical as possible. Mm. Um so that's sort of yeah. It's a very empowering organisation, isn't it, in that sense. And people can come at it from whatever level they happen to be at. So if they're local and they want to do something very locally, and before we came on air, we were talking about some of the local groups and how active or not active they are. And, you know, so there's that sense that if you're local, you can get engaged with your local group. If you want to do more and you have more time to give and you can spare the time, as I know you've, you've given up huge amounts of time, haven't you? Um, you can do more <laughs> to a kind of national level. So it isn't yeah. this... So it's, my sense of it and the encounters I've had with it have been very empowering, I think, and actually saying to everybody, everybody has a voice in this, yeah. which is really the point, isn't it? We all have to take responsibility for what's happening to our climate, and we all need to have our voice and have our voice heard, And which is why the work that you're doing, Steve, is so important, because that's actually about trying to get that, that general public's voice into the system. Um, tell us a bit about the bill that you've been working on and what you're trying to achieve and how that process might work. Um, so the, so Extinction Rebellion are doing amazing work um, in, with their direct action. Um, but there's obviously now a huge uh, movement um, on their, essentially on their, on their list of contacts. And they're all across the country, these people. Um, and obviously not all of them are you know, right now on the streets of London. Um, so there's massive potential there to, uh, as well, um, influence in a different way. And that's where, that was, that was partly why I suggested, well, you know, let's have a bill. The other sort of founding principle of it is, in terms of having this, this bill, is um, the three demands that Extinction Rebellion have um, all require action from the government and ultimately will all require legislation. So my just remind us what those three demands yes, so are, because people might not know them. Yes. Yeah, so it's it's number one is tell the truth, which specifically is for the government to declare a climate and ecological emergency. Number two is to for the UK to hit net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2025, and number three is the establishment of a citizens assembly, which will work together with um, Parliament and government to decide um, on what how we're going to achieve that demand too. That, that net zero um, greenhouse gas emissions by 2025. Okay, we need to come back to that because that's really important. But 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 just on demand one, um, we have formally had a climate emergency declared by the government, haven't we? By Parliament. By Parliament. Yes, and, a big difference. Yeah. And just to clarify on that, because <laughs> this is a that was a vote that was held. Um, the government abstained. Um, there was only a handful of MPs in the chamber, and so essentially it went through because of the votes of um, a number of. Um, Labour MPs and there was maybe a few Lib Dems. I'm sure Caroline Lucas, the Green MP, was there as well. So whilst, yes, officially that means Parliament has voted in support of a climate and ecological emergency, it was a motion, you know, late one afternoon and it does not really mean that MPs on the whole are on side and it certainly isn't the government saying um, it's... Okay, so there's no formal governmental commitment to that. There's a local government commitment isn't there because local governments local councils across the country have been declaring climate emergencies i think it's staggering 160 or something it's over half over half of all local authorities have now passed motions 
yeah, what they've then done with that is another conversation, isn't it? Because they, they've declared a climate emergency and then done pro- lots of them haven't quite known what to do next. OK, so that's number one demand. Number two, net zero by 2025. Now, we've had a number of people on the pod and particularly recently we've, we've had a professor from the IPCC, professor from um, the Grantham Institute at London University who sits on the IPCC, who said that net zero by 2050 was unachievable. So net zero by 2025. I mean, is that just? I mean, is that just pie in the sky? So we're obviously extremely grateful to the IPCC report because you know it. it when that came out, it was sort of at the same time as XR started, and you know it just gave us a lot more weight. But the IPCC is notoriously um, conservative, um, and it goes through lots of processes um, before it even gets published. And there's a lot of political um, power within that as well. So it's not pure science. You know, there's other people who've been tweaking that report. No, but I think his point was, and to be fair to him, it it was very valid and well made, is that actually to get to net zero, even by 2050, requires such an enormous system shift in the way that we run our lives and our industry and our business and our commerce and our domestic lives and our education, all those things. It's just not doable or he feels it's not do many people feel it's not it doable by 2050 mean, depends what he means by achievable yeah okay is it? so tell me about well, the 2025 demand then so um achievable if you mean politically within what you're sort of seeing currently um you then you just have an argument because you're essentially just making you're just making predictions it's a bit like who's going to win an election um a year ago i would have I would have said it was unlikely that the government would have changed the legislation from an 80% target at 2050 to a 100% target at 2050. But because of the efforts of Extinction Rebellion and, and other, other things that have happened too, there's been this incredibly fast shift. And just before Theresa May resigned as Prime Minister, um, her government m- made that change. Now, it's by no means enough, but the point I'm making is that achievable is a shifting thing in terms of politically what's the the other context you could take it in is well what's sort of physically literally achievable um and on that it's completely achievable it is it is totally possible yeah because it's a very simple equation isn't it as he described it it's it's emissions down and carbon sequestration and carbon sinks up so we balance out and we get net zero And so, you know, it logically, is, on on a practical se- in a practical sense, it's completely doable. Um, it is the only thing that's stopping it is the political and economic structures that we currently have in place. So, so it's really a question of: Are we happy to carry on this way, um, risking literally millions of lives? Um, because we don't want to give up our lifestyles as they are now and our government isn't brave enough to make these very, very difficult decisions which are no doubt going to be extremely unpopular with the general public. Um, Or, you know, are are we going to do something about it and and hope that, you know, we can can save some lives, uh, human and animal lives, um, and, you know, because I think as well what people forget is that the concept of extinction isn't sort of, you know, boom, we're all gone. Extinction is extremely slow and painful. It's starving. It's suffering. It's, it's you know, this is something that um, you wouldn't want to put anyone or anything through ever. 
Mm. And I think if if there's any, you know, every single year that we continue the way we are going now is going to mean suffering, starvation, death. Um, and, you know, by, by saying 2050, you're just not taking that seriously. And you are actually saying that you are okay with putting millions of people through that. And that's completely unacceptable. And it isn't just that far extreme of extinction and death and starvation. It's actually some of those other experiences that we'll all have on that path, isn't it? So it's increased temperature, which makes life very difficult and uncomfortable. It causes undue levels of stress to, to young and old alike. It's, you know, rising seawaters. It's inaccessibility of food and, and lack of availability of food. So prices rise, so people experience greater degrees of poverty. You know, so there's all sorts of, of, of stages that we go through as a population before we get to the final extinction. Absolutely. So, okay, so 2025 is a, is a, is a demand and a target because it's about focusing people's attention and saying, you know, we need to do something now. We are a climate crisis. We are a climate, you know, we are a tipping point. How about demand three? citizens assemblies so the reason why um i started the citizens assembly working group together with um keith from keith garrett from the sortition foundation is because um no one knew what the, what a citizens assembly was so that was kind of our first thing and basically um for the issues that need to be decided on we need to be able to think long term and it needs to go beyond party politics. You know, we can't say, oh, we don't like that plan because the Conservatives came up with it, or we don't want that plan because it's Labour or whatever. It needs to be um, issue-focused and um, decided by the people who, at the end of the day, are going to be affected by it and who are going to have to start making compromises in their everyday lives. So, um, so that was the reason why the third demand is the citizens assembly and just very quickly explain how a citizen assembly works because i think lots of people will not have had an opportunity to encounter that and it's a very it comes back to my point earlier on which is this, you actually do want to change the way we run our politics yes and you know you're not just suggesting that you're going to stand for parliament though i think that in itself might be a good thing but that's another <laughs> conversation but you actually want to change the way we operate our daily lives which is politics big p and politics small p so and citizens assemblies are part of that process aren't they so how do they actually work so a citizens assembly um in in the sense that we really want it as xr would be commissioned by the government and it would be a national citizens assembly um so what that means is that um there would be a, a tender process so that companies who are used to running these uh, sorts of processes, because it's not a new thing. Citizens' assemblies are already happening, and there's incredible people who have lots of experience in running them very, very successfully. So, uh, you know, they would be able to apply for the job, so to speak. And oh, they would quite be... formal then. This oh, yeah, quite... yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. So and they would uh, be the independent organisation who would run... Uh, the whole process so be commissioned by government which is good as well because obviously if government paid for it they're going to want to actually use what's come out of it because otherwise they've paid for nothing so that's also a good way of doing it so um and then people are randomly selected so it's a little bit like how you're selected for jury service except that there will be you know what they call stratification of the sample so it basically means that the the company who's going to be running it will make sure that there's uh, properly represented uh, so we get sample. a real cross section of society as part of yes. that process. Yeah. Okay. What 
Stephen, in that case, why do we need that third demand in your bill? Because that sounds like, if, in a way, that sounds like a bit of bureaucratic process. We just need to say, government, this is a good idea. Issue a tender, people will bid, and the assemblies will, will, will get on with the job. It's the reason why um, you you campaign for legislation rather than just rely on the government saying, okay, we'll do it, in any context. Um, so by passing a law that says there's a duty on the government to establish that citizens' assembly process, that ensures that they'll do it, unlike if they just make a promise, because then they might say, yeah, we'll do it, but then they take time, and then you're chasing them, and then they say, yeah, oh, it's busy now, or maybe in six months' time. No, you can, you can take... Um, you can really sort of grab hold of the agenda when you write draft legislation or a bill um, that actually lays out exactly how you want it to happen, the duty the government have, and then what you can start doing as well. And we've done this to some degree, not not a great degree, in the in the current version that we have. We've, we've, we've written out the principles upon which we want this citizens' assembly to operate. Realistically, Steve, how close are you to getting this to a point where it could go forward as a bill and become legislation? The bill has been drafted um, and we now need at least one MP to introduce it into Parliament. That's when it becomes an actual bill. Um, So at the moment it's only a draft bill. Um, And is that through the private member's bill process or is this separate from that? It initially would be a private member's bill. That's where you have one MP introducing it. However, previous campaigns, for example, the campaign for the Climate Change Act, um, that was eventually the government introduced it as a government bill. It ultimately doesn't matter. If it's a private member's bill that becomes law, it's only going to become law with the government support. And obviously government bill already has the government support. The, The important thing for us now is we need to get at least one MP to say, all right, I'll introduce Okay. And is this the purpose of this particular um, uprising, this particular rebellion that's going on at the moment in October? Is it to try and push those three demands right to the fore to get the government to listen to those? Or does it have a wider agenda, which is trying to get people as individuals to engage with the conversation around climate change and change behaviours? It's definitely um, both. Um, We we still need people to... um, to understand the situation we're actually in. There are still people who genuinely don't understand or don't believe that things are as bad as we say they are. But then obviously at the same time, we also need government to take action. So it's very much both of those things. And government action, I mean, we've already got, you know, I know we haven't declared a climate emergency, but we've got the Climate Change Act. You know, people tell me that Good things are coming out of the, you know, the government's <laughs> environment bill. You know whether that will ever, mm. ever materialise post Brexit. If we ever get to a post Brexit, um, you know there are there's activities around supporting non fossil fuels. There's support for renewables. There's some financial support for, you know, do we really need it? Yeah, there's some good things happening, but there is nowhere near enough happening, which is why we're doing what we're doing. Um, in terms of what people can do to help to help this, we need everyone to be asking their MP to support this bill. Yeah, and it's called the Climate and Ecological Emergency Bill. Um, We call it the Three Demand Bill because it essentially encompasses our three demands. And how do people do that? How do people support the bill? I mean, is it, you know, could you just go and like a change.org petition? Can you go and sign up somewhere or...? 
it is our democratic right to ask our MPs to do things um, because they are our elected servants. So um, find find out who your MP is um, and get in touch with them. You can write to them or email them. It's very straightforward. There'll be um, details and to help you if you go onto the XR website. So you can go to the website rebellion.earth and then you can click on the three demands and then scroll down, you'll see our third demand and there's lots of uh, links you can click on there like information on uh, the climate and ecological emergency bill. But there's a lot more that you can do as well as just write or email your MP. You can go and see your MP, um, you can see them at their, usually they'll have a weekly surgery in the constituency somewhere, um, they certainly should do, so you can go there, go on your own, take your friends, um, or you can go and visit them actually in the Houses of Parliament. We have a democratic right to go and lobby, as it's called, our MPs whenever we want. And indeed, the reason that lobbying is called lobbying all over the world is because you can go in to central lobby in the Houses of Parliament and say, I'm here to see my MP. Although, probably better, if you're going to do that, send your MP a message and tell them when you're going to be there and ideally agree a time to actually have an appointment. Yeah, I mean, you can send a little card when you're there, can't you? And they're meant to, you know, that goes off to them and they're meant to come back and talk to you, but they don't always do that. Okay, I and just, that's why you should make an appointment. Yeah, much better yeah. to make an appointment. So we've got a mass lobbying of MPs, either in the House or, or in their constituency offices. We've got lots of activity, you know, through petitions on the website, making lots of noise. We, we can't finish this conversation without dealing with some of the detractors. Now, there are a lot of people who are saying that you know, quite apart from what our, the, our esteemed Prime Minister has said about Extinction Rebellion members, and I'm not going to dignify his comment by repeating it here. Um, <laughs> we don't mind the comments that no, much, to be no. honest. It's We're not that pub- bothered. Yeah, no, it's publicity. <laughs> but it was such a stupid thing to say. Um, there's my knighthood gone down the drain. Um, but let's talk about people who don't agree. Let's talk about people who think that you are making it difficult for them to get to work, that actually... Really, your voice would be much, but you've made your point now, time to go home, much better off just doing that, writing to MPs and going through formal processes. Why do we need mass occupation on the streets? Well, the first thing I just want to say about these comments by Boris Johnson is that it just highlights the kind of government that we have at the moment. His job is literally to look after us. He is our prime minister and he just insulted, you know, thousands of his citizens. He hasn't read that bit of the job description. <laughs> no, I don't think he has. Uh, and and it's just, it's just ridiculous. You know, he he cannot sit there in his position and insult people like that. I mean, you know, we don't care. We're thick-skinned enough. But that's he's not doing his job. And but that comes from a misunderstanding of two things doesn't it one how important this stuff is to all of us um, not just personally but because we care about the planet that we live in and our children and grandchildren yeah and the other is not really bothering to get his head around the facts so it's not just understanding the emotion and the fact that we care it's that there are some facts driving what you're saying there are facts driving the climate change debate and there are facts behind the fact that we need to reduce to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels and even less if we can manage it. So that, so there's a scientific evidential base for this, yes. and he's not understanding that either. And not only that, I just, sorry, I keep taking over, um, but also, um, for example, on Monday, um, the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, which actually used to have climate change in its title and they just scrapped it, 
um, they actually um, gave permission for two more fossil fuel power plants to be opened in North Yorkshire, even though, um, you know, the officials have been saying, you, ca you cannot do it, we will go over the legal amount of CO2 that we'll be emitting. And that's just been fundamentally ignored. So it's not just that the government doesn't get it, or that someone like Boris Johnson doesn't get it, they're actually doing more to make the situation worse. And what was awful about this silly BEIS department is that then the next day they brought out this tweet with this video about all the amazing things they're doing, and it's just complete nonsense. Well, some greenwashing. But what about the person in the street? So somebody who you know is trying to get to work, their bus has been rerouted, there's, you know, it's raining and they're going, oh, here they go again. You know, they're costing yeah. money, thousands of policemen having to do overtime. You know, they'd be better off staying at home writing letters. What do you say? Well, to some people, people might think that, but um, it's absolutely clear that the vast majority of people are deeply concerned and worried about the, the climate and ecological crisis that we've got. Um, there was it a few weeks back, the, the, the Mori poll done by the Evening Standard? It's 85% of the public. Yeah. Um, or very so there's, concerned, yeah. yeah, I mean, you're never going to convince absolutely everyone. It's not really something here or there, understandably. But people are getting it. It's not very difficult to get, um, and they're really worried. Um, I just and you think that's justification for the more extreme actions? So because people, you know, blocking airports, yeah, you know, preventing planes from taking off, or you know, gluing themselves to, to 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 buildings or bits of public transport. I mean, we wouldn't be doing any of this if the situation was okay, you know, if, if things were already happening, if the government was already taking action. You know, there's a very easy way to get us off the streets and stop wasting police time and money and everything. It's to actually start doing something and then we'll all happily clear off, tidy up our mess, you know, well, even though there really isn't any mess, but, you know, we'll clear off and that'll be that. But that's not what's happening. Um, and also, so yesterday, um, there was a, the police were blocking the road at Whitehall, and I had my pile of flyers that says, you know, we're sorry, and then it explains sort of what we're doing. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm standing there handing out these flyers and apologizing for the disruption, and thank you so much for understanding and for your patience. And almost everyone was sympathetic and lots of people said thank you so much for doing this they weren't part of the protest they were just you know walking or cycling from work to home they were all professionals normal people and they were grateful sure there were a couple of people who were upset but um you know but what about the fact that i'm just I'm, we, we're probably running out of time but i just wanted to pick up something that roger said recently roger Hammond, hallam because i know he's in prison at the moment while we're recording this but yeah. he has said for this demonstration to be really successful we need five thousand people to be arrested and at least 500 to go to prison and that's quite a demand isn't it i yes. mean asking someone to you know possibly put their professional reputation on the line because <laughs> you come out with a you know a, 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 sent, a, a you know a criminal conviction that's a big ask of people. Is that really necessary? Do you really need that number of people to be arrested and go to prison? There are lots of people who, who are prepared and want to do it. And it's not really that surprising when you actually start to imagine what um, the climate crisis is going to mean for us. Um, in fact, I think we're going to be seeing a lot more people um, than that offering themselves up um, to be arrested. Yeah, I mean, when I started with Extinction Rebellion, I thought it was way too extreme and there was no way I was going to get arrested. 
Um, and then, you know, you just, uh, you know, when you become involved in Nixar, you also learn more and more about the situation and what's happening and you just become much more desperate as well, I think. So in April, I was arrested and I will be arrested again, probably. Mm. Were you, know, you convicted? Um, well, I don't quite know what's happened with the court. I mean, I think so, but they forgot to invite me to come to court. So it's oh. sort of, yeah. <laughs> You're lost in the bureaucratic system. Yes. <laughs> I, and I want to pick up on that because what really strikes me about XR is that if you put yourself forward into that situation, there's an enormous amount of support. Yes. So there's a little bit about like the suffragettes. You know, here we are 100 years on and there are people being arrested. And the, the support mechanism with not just legal observers, lawyers for XR, but actually people who will be there, you know, who do practical stuff like take care of your phone for you and make sure your relatives know and turn up outside the police station with something to eat. And, you know, there's a real structure. And I suppose that goes back to my point about it being quite bureaucratic. But you've put in place all sorts of checks and balances to help those people. So if you are arrested, you're not alone and abandoned at the mercy of the state. You've actually got a protection and a support network. Yeah. Something else I'd emphasise about the suffragettes um, and the abolitionists as well, the same, and all other um, fantastic campaigns like that that have succeeded in the past, which is that the number of people really putting themselves on the line, getting arrested, um, was impressive. But there was a massive number more who weren't, but were really important and helpful. They were coming to demonstrations. They would have been lobbying their politicians. And so the beauty of what we have now is that if you want to go and get arrested and be on the street, great, do that. Um, And if, for whatever reason, that's not for you, you're still a part of the movement and you can lobby your MP. Yeah, to but this bill. You, you can also be on the street and not get arrested. Yeah. You know, just being part of the protest doesn't necessarily mean. There's lots of routine. absolutely. There's lots of routes in. We could talk about this all day. Oh and yes, we, <laughs> we haven't even talked about my. And, and I wanted to share my fantastic experience I had of a citizens' assembly actually within Parliament in the Jubilee Room. But I'll keep that for another day. It was amazing. Thank you both so much. Um, it's been fantastic to hear from the front line. And good luck with the rest of this particular rebellion. And I suspect with the ones that are coming afterwards. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Haywood, and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners. Without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.